0: then i told my boss about how i'm on a how i have a podcast that's listened to internationally and she seemed it's like her eyes just glazed over when i was talking about (laughs) it she seemed so deeply uninterested
1: Welcome to I'd buy that for a dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host Sean Hartman, proud owner of America's best food truck, Cosmo's Snackery. Real quick, I just want to tell people that we have a few new menu items. We got the Suzy Q fries with the handmade hoodoo sauce, and the leaking out my backdoor tacos, which obviously come with grilled oh, leeks. Oh my god. <laughs> And, uh, you know, things have been going so well, we've already got some t-shirts made up, so stop on down, get your uh, Keep On Chewglin at Cosmo Snacktree t-shirts, that's C-H-E-W. I want to know what the midnight special is there. (laughs) You're just going to have to show up in person and find out. Hey, tonight I will show up.
2: Oh.
0: (laughs) Wow. I think that was our first two-parter intro uh,
1: title.
2: I I think I think I cut Sean off too. I don't think he was done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I was I was basically done. That's good. Three okay. part if you count all of Jeremy's groans.
0: Uh, I meant two part like you started that title in the previous episode and now you're you're elaborating on it.
1: Oh, true. Yeah. Could it be cuz it's our first real two-part episode? I think so. Uh,
2: is it really? Didn't we do a two-parter on Ramsey Lewis? <laughs>
0: We did do a two-parter on... We did a three-parter, didn't we? No. Well, we talked about doing a (laughs) three-parter.
1: Yeah, this is just like more of a cohesive thing and more of a complete story arc and biography, I think. But yes, this is our second time we've covered an artist twice in a row. Well, I'm co-host
0: Jeremy, and I would like to inform co-host Peter that I'm suing him. Wait, Wait, what? I'm suing you, Peter. For what? So you were on a Weezer podcast where you had a strong likeness to your "I'd buy that for a dollar" persona as Peter Cook. Uh huh. And I uh, own the rights actually to you.
2: Oh, so I can't be myself anywhere but on this podcast? Correct.
0: And I'm <laughs> suing you. Oh, fair enough. Don't worry; it's relevant to this podcast. Oh, this episode,
2: it's all right. I won't worry then that you're suing me, <laughs> since it's, yeah, it's
1: relevant. It's all gonna be fine, Peter. You'll get your court summons eventually. <laughs> like it's all real, cut and dry. Don't even sweat it.
2: I, anxiety out the window.
0: <laughs> the Supreme Court already ruled in your favor, so it's gonna go all
2: right for you. Oh, jeez. Well, I am co-host, Peter, and aside from getting sued. You probably think of me as someone who likes to bite the heads off of chickens, but you should see me on the golf course. I can get it out of the sand trap like nobody's business.
0: Oh, wow. That's from that Norm McDonald <laughs> clip yeah. you sent us.
2: Yeah, where Norm McDonald was on Letterman talking about uh, an interaction with Bob Euchre, famous baseball announcer, who was also friends with John Fogarty. Norm was hanging out with Bob Euchre at, at a Milwaukee Brewers game and you know Euchre's <laughs> telling him hey you know that, that guy's you know he's a rock and roll singer John Fogarty <laughs> and he he can get out of the sand trap like nobody's business I golfed with him and then he's trying to get he's trying to get uh, telling him at the 7th inning stretch I'll have him come up and he can sing for you no 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 it's okay <laughs> got a hell of a set of pipes on him don't you even know who he is yeah. Watch the clip. The Watch the clip. Look it up on the YouTube. Norm MacDonald, Bob Euchre <laughs> talking about John Fogerty. And that's who we're talking about again.
0: We're also talking about
2: John Fogerty
0: and his self-titled album, John Fogerty.
1: Yeah. And that incredible set of pipes he's got. All true. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably listen to a song before we get started in earnest. How about a little side a track one rocking all over the world
0: sure even though it's my least favorite one we'll (laughs) we'll start there
1: it was like kind of a hit yeah i mean kind of but not really there's really no hits on this record yeah uh, any normal definition of a hit all right here we go rocking all over the world side a track one
2: surprised to learn that that song a cover of that song by the band status quo who are a uk band was a big hit like a bigger hit than i think it was for john fogarty
1: yeah by a long shot john mentioned that he thought it was really cool that they had a hit with this song and liked that band and was just like happy for him that they were able to get something out of this song that he doesn't have a lot of positive associations with anymore.
2: Something came out of it. Something good. Something
1: Something good. And you know, <laughs> generally for me, it's a rule that I don't ever want to hear someone talking about rocking in a song. And I think John Fogerty is just about the only guy that I give a pass to <laughs> on that subject matter. The song is still like a little cheesy, but he just, he pulls it off again. He's got that, like he's got that air of authenticity that you just can't shake.
2: Does it work for you when Neil Young sings Keep On Rocking in the Free World? Mm, not really. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: one's got substance, though, to it. In the verses. Yeah. yeah, it does. This one doesn't, really, and that's why it was my least favorite. It, it's very anthemic. It carries a lot of the, the power and energy of a classic CCR kind of cut in my mind, but that like substance that he has in most of his work I feel like isn't there in this one.
2: Well, and this was right after the Blue Ridge Rangers album that we covered last week, where at that point in time, he had been struggling with writer's block. So he probably still wasn't fully inspired at this point.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that's a fair assessment. Blue Ridge Rangers came out in 73. This record dropped in 75, by the way. And yeah, he's, he is writing some of the songs on here, and I feel like there's kind of two ways to look at it. You could say that like, sure, this isn't a great song, but it's still fun, or you can look at it and be like, man, what a waste in comparison to his better material, which I choose to just really enjoy this record. There's some songs that I think are brilliant and stack up against anything from CCR and some tracks like that one that are just just a well-executed, fun little song, but John himself tends to look back on both of these first solo records and just think about how they could have been done better if he had been in a better place.
2: So in true John Fogarty fashion, he doesn't necessarily go to bat for these albums across the board.
0: Right. (laughs) Are you going to do baseball references this whole app, Peter? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's probably why... uh... Bob Eucher and John Fogarty were good pals, huh? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, that <laughs> that all makes sense. Yeah,
2: that's why that story exists.
1: All right. You guys want to dive into some more info? Part two of The Legend of John Fogarty? Yeah, give us a, a tiny bit of run-up as to where we were. So, we left John in the year 1973. The CCR had just broken up. As we said, he was literally on top of the music world for just a hot minute in the late 60s and early 70s. One of the most respected songwriters, one of the most beloved bands, and then his first solo record just kind of flopped, Um, and we'll get into some of the reasons why that happened. I mean, some of them are obvious in that he didn't put his name on it, like we mentioned, but he's getting ready to make this second solo record and hopefully make a record as good as his CCR stuff and come back out on top as a solo artist. Unfortunately, things began to take a dark turn for John Fogarty in the post-CCR days. And to understand this, we need to learn about why CCR broke up and the relationship he had with Fantasy Records and its president, Saul Zantz. I'm going to guess not good for either of those. <laughs> We've talked a lot of shit about some fairly legendary people in the music industry before. We've um, you know, said some not nice things about Clive Davis a handful of times. Well, get ready, because I'm going to talk so much shit about Saul dance throughout this episode.
2: Yeah, you said that Clive Davis, you told Jeremy and I before recording that Clive Davis is going to look like a Boy Scout in comparison.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, let's dig in. The infighting and legal battles that took place within Credence are somewhat legendary. It took such a toll on John that he generally refused to perform Credence songs live up until 1997.
2: Oh, that, that makes sense. I saw him on Letterman right around then, and I, he, I'm like, oh, cool, John Fogarty's the guest. And I'm, Except I'm expecting him to come out and play a song I've never heard, and he comes out and plays Fortunate Son and brings the house down. And, yeah. Yeah. But that's right about the time he was starting to play them again, huh? Mm-hmm.
1: When he started playing CCR songs live again, he said the audiences just like erupted, like it was massive because he'd gone decades without playing his most loved songs at this point. But we'll get into that more towards the end of the episode. So throughout my years of you know hanging in record stores, I've heard so many stories and rumors about Fogarty and CCR. And I was often told that John was just basically this huge asshole and was impossible to work with. And I would say that while this may not be entirely untrue, it is far from the complete picture. In some ways, the relationship between John and his other bandmates was doomed from the beginning. To John, music was everything. Not only his passion and his escape, but at many times, it was literally the only thing he had going for himself. In high school, while his bandmates were out being teenagers and having a social life, John was at home in his basement working on music. When John got out of the army and the band decided to give things one final push, John was the only one that wrote any new songs. The rest of the band thought they could just show up unprepared to rehearsals and recording sessions and just kind of make up songs on the spot. In contrast, John was staying up all night long writing until he knew he had something good. He would write many songs and throw them away if he didn't feel like they were perfect or shelve them until he could perfect them later. And then he would show up to practice with every part of the song fully written, like for every member of the band. Wow. Yeah. Now you got to remember that Tom Fogarty was actually the elder brother and originally the lead singer of the band before they had changed their name to Creedence Clearwater Revival early on john was considered just like the younger sort of uncool band member in the early days the band mostly operated as equals during the time of like the blue velvets and the gollywogs but as credence skyrocketed into fame the other guys took it with a sense of entitlement whereas john knew that if they didn't keep bringing the heat it would all quickly fall apart His perfectionist tendencies and uncompromising vision could not have been easy to work with. He might have even been a complete nightmare to be in a band with. However, upon closer inspection, any claims that John was somehow stifling his bandmate's creative genius quickly falls apart. Just listen to CCR's final album, Mardi Gras. Before recording, the band had a meeting where they demanded a more democratic approach to band management and the ability to have their own songwriting input. John agreed to this, and the band decided that they would each write an equal share of the next album. Shortly after the meeting, Tom quit the band, bringing them down to a trio. And when Mardi Gras dropped, it was called the worst album ever released by a major rock band. Critics did note that exactly one-third of the songs were still good, though.
2: (laughs) There's a really good episode of Todd and the Shadows Train Records on YouTube all about that album. Interesting. Yeah, worth checking out. Mm-hmm.
0: Am I misremembering? Is the movie almost famous, like loosely based on kind of the infighting of CCR?
2: I think it was more Led Zeppelin that oh, okay. they were that that movie was based on, but there it was probably a hybrid of because Cameron Crowe was a rock journalist as a as a teenager for Rolling Stone, so it, he might have been. It could have been. It's probably around seventy two, seventy three. So the, I think that's supposed to be taking place. So might be a little after ccr but
1: yeah yeah anyone needing further proof of my claim can just check out the solo albums of doug clifford and tom fogarty they are shockingly bad <laughs> like almost unlistable especially doug he's a fucking terrible singer he's even got like donald duck done backing him up and the record is still terrible <laughs> oof yeah, from uh, from Booker T. From Booker T. and the MGs, like one of the most respected session bassists ever, and still couldn't rescue that album. Uh, John tells a story in his autobiography about when they were recording the hit song "Cotton Field" from the album "Willie and the Poor Boys." Supposedly, the drum track was so bad that he had to go in after hours and make small cuts before every single backbeat, which was about thirty to forty hand edits on two-inch tape. When he was done, he collected all the tape slivers, put them in an envelope, drove to Doug's house, threw it in his face, and said, Here's your drum track.
2: Wow. Man. That's uh I feel like that should be up there with that story of uh Charlie Watts clocking Mick Jagger for calling <laughs> him his
1: drummer. <laughs>
2: like,
3: yeah.
1: And again, it's like, man, what an asshole thing to do, but he's still not wrong. You know, it's like if you're going to be a drummer in the biggest band in the world, you shouldn't fuck up a take that bad that it needs to be edited after you've had like weeks to rehearse it and play it in the studio. Well,
0: nowadays they just do that no matter what. Yeah, that's true. Back then it was a lot more work (laughs) to be chopping things up like that.
1: Well, also back then, like if the if the guy in the band made a mistake, the label would just pay for a real session pro to come in and make the fixes. But fantasy was not a regular label and they weren't putting any money into stuff like that. Like if John wanted a good record out, it was literally all on him. Hmm. Aside from being the principal slash only songwriter, arranger and producer in CCR, John was basically the band manager as well. Maybe this was due to his stubbornness, but as we said, fantasy was infamous for not wanting to invest any money into managing or promoting their artists. The other members of CCR were quick to point out when John made inevitable mistakes in management, but reluctant to take on any responsibility of their own. Now, you guys remember that contract with fantasy with Saul ants that we mentioned last episode?
0: Oh yeah, he was gonna tear it up as if in case anyone got famous.
1: Would you and believe give a much better deal? Yeah. <laughs> Would you believe that Saul Zance didn't actually tear up the contract once Credence got big? No. I'm stunned. In fact, their contract is often remembered as one of the worst in music history. Fantasy owned the band's name. They owned 100% of the copyright on all of their music. And not only that, but the band owed Fantasy a total of 180 master recordings over the next six years. CCR never hit their yearly quota, even in 1969 when they released three albums.
2: (laughs) Well, I I guess that might explain some of the urgency, but it also sounds like a legal battle that I'm currently dealing with with uh, Jeremy here. (laughs) Oh no,
1: that's that's another legal battle that'll happen later (laughs) for Sean. So after all of that, the band was only paid 10% of net sales which is kind of the low end for any sort of major act in the music industry. And, you know, they also usually get some kind of like publishing or copyright on top of that. In 1969, Credence pressured Fantasy to rewrite the contract as they had promised. And all they ended up getting was the rights to the band name back and the ability to veto future compilation albums. And a sort of confusing offer to save money on their royalties that turned out to be a mob-affiliated offshore banking scheme. <laughs>
2: oh. oh wow! They're uh, they're now on the uh, Netflix TV show Ozark.
1: Yeah. <laughs> the The band was given back their copyright, but only on songs released after nineteen seventy. And if you look at their discography, they only had one more hit single after that time period, the song Sweet Hitchhiker from Mardi Gras. When Credence broke up, Fantasy quickly released Tom, Doug, and Stu from their contracts. However, John was still locked in and owed Fantasy the remainder of those 180 songs. Oof. So this is the environment that John was in while creating these first two solo records that we're listening to. While the covers and the one-man band approach may have been sort of a comforting, natural place for him to go, it was also a reaction to his extreme loneliness and feelings of betrayal from both his band and the label. At first, he just wanted to lock himself in the studio and hoped it would all go away. That was actually part of his reason for adopting the one-man band approach, because it just seemed like a big task that would take a lot of energy and focus and he could just kind of try and ignore all of this legal bullshit that was starting to go on. And the fact that he was obviously being screwed by his label and really couldn't do anything about it.
2: Yeah. I can only imagine that would really take its toll on your mental state. And you just want to get lost in something?
1: Yeah. And then, you know, add in, the intense schedule that CCR was on for their short four years of existence, dropping multiple albums a year on tour all the time. John's staying up all night just to keep writing songs in between gigs and everything. The the man was just fully burnt out by the time he was making these solo records.
2: Understandable. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Now, if anyone for some reason doesn't believe how exploitative their contract with fantasy was here's a few quick examples fantasy records moved and built a fancy new office building in 1971 it was an open secret and many of the staff referred to the building as the house that john built by 1972 fantasy had acquired the labels prestige riverside and milestone they also purchased Stax records in 1977 Saul Zance even got into the film industry and was a producer on three Oscar-winning movies. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Amadeus, and The English Patient. CCR was responsible for easily at least 90% of the label's revenue and is the only reason Saul was able to make investments like this.
2: Yeah, they're really the only band that I have ever taken note of being on that label.
1: Yeah, nothing else on fantasy ever even came close to the level of popularity that CCR had. Like there's some cool names and there's some good records on there. But if you just like scroll through the chronological discography of fantasy, it's like small artists, some jazz records, and then like five CCR related records and like reissues of 45s and compilations and greatest hits. And it's just like they made all their money off of basically one guy. You know, when it comes down to it, John Fogarty was CCR in fantasy, completely exploited his work as much as they possibly could. Supposedly, when Saul Zance's wife left him, one of the only items she left behind was a poster of CCR on the wall so that he could, quote, remember where his money came from. Oof.
2: (laughs) Damn.
1: Yeah. Well, you guys want to hear another song? Yeah. So this is another cover, one of the few covers on this record, but also one of my favorites. We're going to hear John Fogarty's version of the Jackie Wilson classic, Lonely Teardrops, which I went ahead and listened to a bunch of other covers of this song. And I can confidently say that this is the best cover of this song that's ever been done, in my opinion, at least.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that, you know, aside from Jackie Wilson, that many other people could do the song justice other than john fogarty
1: <laughs> <laughs> true all right so we're looking at side one track five
4: lonely tail drive.
2: something that i don't think we've really mentioned yet just a thought that i had hearing john fogarty's lead guitar playing there he is a gnarly lead guitar player i i I feel like that's something that doesn't get addressed often is it's kind of in that neil young vein of sort of being somewhere between like a a bluesy based lead playing and sort of (laughs) avant-garde
0: Yeah, most definitely, and I think we should mention again, in case people didn't listen to the first part of this, the Blue Ridge Rangers episode, John Fogarty's playing everything. He, If there's something he wanted and he didn't play it already, he went and learned it and played it on this, so that's him on the horns, and that's him on the lead guitar, and that's him on drums,
1: <laughs> like... <laughs> And he arranged everything too, you know, it's not like there was some guy in the control booth telling him what to do. Like it was just him on everything.
2: Truly remarkable.
1: And like you said, Peter, he's a brilliant guitarist. I mean, we could spend time just talking about that. Not only is he talented in the way that he plays, but he's a highly emotive guitar player from an early age. He was really interested in doing a lot of like string bending In fact, his first electric guitar, he played with two high E strings and no low E strings so that he could just have strings that are easier to bend and get that kind of piercing early rock and roll feel. And yeah, you can just, you can tell where the importance was for him. It wasn't just flashy guitar playing. It was the emotion and it was the tone too. John was always kind of a tone fanatic on every instrument that he played. It needed to sound perfect and authentic.
2: Yeah, yeah, his guitar tone, it, just like his singing voice, is unmistakable and really distinctive. When I worked at a deli many, many years ago, one of the songs playing on the Muzak or the you know the overhead speakers was the, the full 10 plus minute version of I heard it through the grapevine and I'd always be excited. I'm like, I'm going to hear some gnarly guitar playing for the next few minutes. <laughs> It, it, it was a bright point in many, in my dark days Yeah. <laughs> at the time.
1: <laughs> one of the things John has said about this time period is that he kind of regrets putting so many years and so much effort into this one man band thing. And that if he have just stuck with guitar, his main instrument, he could have been, you know, maybe the greatest guitar player ever, which I'm starting to think that he's probably not wrong about that either, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. I had just focused on that one instrument instead of every instrument in the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, yeah. The highest standards for himself before anyone else at all times. All right. So when the blue Ridge Rangers was released fantasy to no surprise, put really no effort into promoting it. And then informed John that the album did not even count towards the contract since it wasn't a rock and roll album. Wow. (laughs) And as we said, John had been actively just hoping that this would all blow over and he could just make music and not worry about it. And then when that meeting happened, he realized that it was time to take action. He met with David Geffen, who at the time was the president of Asylum Records, and told him the whole story. And David's first reaction was, well, maybe I'll just buy fantasy records, which ended up not panning out. He attempted to buy John's contract from Fantasy, but they refused to completely sell it. What they were able to do is this like weird deal where Asylum got the rights on future releases in the USA and Canada, but John was still contracted to Fantasy and all the international pressings of this record were still on Fantasy. So if you find this album outside of the US, it's probably still got a Fantasy label on it. As a side note, John refers to this album as the Shep album, because that is the name of his dog pictured on the cover. Aww. So I'll be referring to it as the Shep album from here out. Deal. Unfortunately, the Shep album failed to chart. John quickly recorded a follow-up album for Asylum called Hoodoo. However, after playing it for the label executives, they politely suggested that... The album wasn't very good, not up to his typical standards and that maybe he should spend some time working out his personal issues before trying to record again. John then agreed with their assessment and destroyed the album completely, and then went into a self-imposed exile for the next 10 years. He spent most of that time doggedly practicing his one-man band technique in order to prove to himself and to the world that he could still make a hit record by doing this. Wow, he took that pretty personal. <laughs> yeah, yep. I mean, he's he's got the attitude where if he's going to start something, he's not going to ever finish until it's been perfected or was successful. Like, regardless of whether it's the good decision or not, he just couldn't get away from it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, too, because this record has some really bright spots, and feels to me i mean obviously because ccr was basically john fogarty this feels like ccr like further
1: down the line to me yeah definitely it really feels like a sequel to it and then you know as you learn that ccr was basically just john in many ways it makes sense that this would just be a, a ccr sequel i also want to note that like you know, he made this attempt to move out of his exploitative deal with fantasy. And unfortunately, what he ended up with, Asylum, kind of played out even worse, despite really getting along with the people at the Asylum label. that Basically, for the U.S. and Canada royalties they paid them to John and then he had to pay taxes on it, but then he had to pay that money back to fantasy anyways. So fantasy was basically making even more money out of him without having to pay taxes on it anymore. It was just a totally bizarre deal that was not good in any way for him. Oh yeah. Uh,
2: this is getting into like uh death row NWA <laughs>
1: EZE territory. <laughs> sure. <laughs> financial and legal disputes continued to plague john throughout the 80s when john tried to remove his money from fantasy's sketchy offshore bank account he found out that the bank had supposedly closed down years ago his money was nowhere to be found he hired a firm to try and track it down and they were not able to find any of his life savings from ccr at that point It appeared that Saul had just disappeared with it, and there was no trace, so he didn't have to make things better in any way. Years later, the band was able to win a $13 million lawsuit from Fantasy over this, and they split it four ways. However, it was not nearly the full amount that had been deposited, and just a tiny fraction of the countless millions that the label had made off of them over the years. Eventually, John agreed to give up his publishing rights from Fantasy in exchange for finally being released from his contract. He received a great deal of criticism for this decision. However, his new freedom gave him the inspiration needed to write new songs again after a long extended bout of writer's block after the Shep album. The result was 1985's unexpected, massive hit, Centerfield. And now that his music no longer belonged to fantasy, things were starting to look up. Or were they? And it's also... It, it appeared they were. It's also worth noting that Centerfield was another album entirely recorded by John.
2: Wow, even those hand claps?
1: Yes. On Centerfield or him? Well, he used a drum machine, but it's him that programmed it.
2: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> so in a lot of ways, Centerfield was the album that he needed to prove to the world that he could make. He spent 10 years woodshedding and writing and you know dealing with his personal demons and then made a huge hit record as a one-man band in 1985 which is just impressive on so many levels you know how many artists were as big or even close to as big as CCR and then had a comeback 15 years later that's crickets yeah (laughs) 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 So it would seem that John's troubles would be over at this point. He had a hit record and was finally on a real label, Warner Brothers at this point, who you know could actually promote him and cared about his music, and he stated that he had a, a great relationship with the executives there. However, things were not great for him at this point. The follow-up to Centerfield, Eye of the Zombie, that came out the next year was a critical and commercial failure. John thinks of it as his worst album of his career, and he's probably right. It's, it's not a good album. He decided to go the exact opposite route of the one-man band approach and hired a bunch of studio pros, and then later realized that just because someone is a studio pro doesn't mean they know how to get the feel of this like Americana rock and roll that he's trying to do. he's probably like
2: why didn't I just do this myself
1: exactly (laughs) on top of all this he was now dealing with more legal trouble from Saul Zantz he was being sued for Centerfield's hit the old man down the road supposedly plagiarizing CCR's run through the jungle so in effect he's getting sued for sounding like himself
2: yeah yeah you sound like uh John Fogarty, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah how dare you
0: this is... sounds like something John Fogarty would write in
2: c c r so i i I see why you are suing me, jeremy yeah,
0: now you understand why I have to sue you, Peter I,
2: there's a precedent that's been set here,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: and this one all the way to the Supreme Court though correct I don't know if that one went all the way to the supreme court um newsflash it did it didn't
2: fogerty v zance
1: (laughs) yeah that went to the
0: supreme court and they ruled you know you can't sue someone for
2: sounding like
3: themselves
1: (laughs) that's ridiculous Um, the the book said that it was decided by a jury decision so i mean i didn't think it was the supreme court but i could be wrong either way Whoever made the final decision, it was unanimous that John did not in fact plagiarize himself and that there's obvious similarities between all of his songs because he's John Fogarty and he has a distinctive style, but they are not the same song.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, there are some bands, one that comes to mind is U2, sorry to our U2 fans, but to me they suffer from a sameness in a lot of their songs that doesn't work for me. But the, the John Fogarty CCR sameness... It's never bothered me.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Good point. So in addition to the plagiarization lawsuit, Saul had also filed a $140 million defamation suit for... song zans can't dance on the centerfield album which was a song about a little pig that tries to steal people's money (laughs) john was forced to change the name to vans can't dance which is great because the way john sings you could you know tell someone that he was saying either zans or vans and no one would be able to argue with you so that was an easy fix (laughs) (laughs) however these lawsuits dragged on for years almost a decade in fact with Saul purposely trying to wear John down by keeping him in court as much as possible. The whole time Saul had suspended paying royalties, not just on the song in question for the plagiarization suit, but on all CCR songs. This was very illegal, and yet no one seemed to be able to do anything about it.
0: Yeah, I would imagine all you could do is make another court case about that.
1: (laughs) Right. And then, guess what? The millionaire is just going to drag it out to where there's no point in reaching a verdict anymore.
0: Yeah. And if your money's in in offshore mob accounts, good luck even getting it if the court (laughs) rule's in your favor.
1: (laughs) Exactly. You're starting to get the full picture of why John was in such a rough place for a long time during his solo career. I'm glad that he struck back with the pig song,
0: though. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta fight him on the field. You can.
1: There was also a song on center field called "Mr. Greed" that was also about Salzance. My multiple. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was pissed, you know. And also, Salzance was just a kind of petty, vindictive guy who was like literally tried to claim in the court that this was all John's fault for starting this fight. Just conveniently not mentioning the millions that he had exploited from John over the years. <laughs> but how dare John say not nice things about him in a song? Oof. <laughs> Sounds
2: like a mature grown up.
1: Yeah, exactly. Feeling that the court was just a never ending hell, John requested the help of respected concert promoter Bill Graham to mediate and try to hopefully bring some kind of closure to this fighting. At first, Bill was impartial and believed Saul to be a mostly respectable businessman. Saul was very good at appearing friendly when he wanted to. In these meetings, Saul agreed to a deal that if John paid him $600,000 to settle the defamation suit, he would then sell John the publishing rights to the CCR songs and said that he would do it at a friendly, well below market value price out of respect for their relationship. (laughs) John paid this fee against his better judgment, and guess what? Saul immediately reneged on the deal. The offer to sell publishing rights ended up being for about 20 times what any fair market value would be. Even the major label Warner Brothers just could not afford it. Once again, Saul had taken John's money and got away with it free of consequences.
2: You know, you were right. Clive Davis is starting to look like a Boy Scout. <laughs> I told
1: you. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Bill Graham was, by the end of this, so disgusted by Saul's actions that he said this in one of their last meetings, which I put the full quote down because it's just one of the most like hilarious old man insults I've ever heard. I'm going to read this to you. Saul... One day, I'm going to be traveling across the Sahara Desert with my camel train, and I'll come upon you, and you'll be buried up to your neck in the burning hot sand. You'll say to me, Bill, please, Bill, just give me some water. I'll ask, how much money do you have, Saul? You'll say, eight dollars. And I'll say, okay, Saul, the price is nine dollars. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, adorable. Yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. Just in case... You're thinking, like, why did John fall for that again? I think something I read, Tom Fogarty, as he was, like, leaving this earthly plane, he was talking to John and referred to Sal as his best friend. Yeah. Like, this is in the 90s after he'd been screwing Tom and John both for years and years and years. And he still referred to him
1: as his best friend and took Saul's side on it. Well, here's the thing. All the members of CCR, aside from John, took Saul's side. And that's why the band never reunited. Because Saul was a master manipulator. He knew that the other guys in CCR didn't have any real talent. And there was no way he was going to exploit them from any future content that they would create. So he pretended to be their best friends and they believed him Yeah, because he knew that if he could get them to think he was their best friend, he could use them to exploit John further. And John was the real moneymaker.
2: Man, everything with this guy is a power play. Yeah,
1: it's wild. So all of this sent John into another 10 year exile after center field. And it began with just spirals of depression, alcoholism, creative block, and the eventual divorce from his first wife, Martha. It got so bad that at one point he no longer wanted to discuss or even hear music anymore. That's pretty bad. Yeah. His whole life. It's, it's an entire life. And it just was ruined for him, mostly by this one fucking greedy millionaire. It's really unfortunate to me that all this drama had ruined John's association with his first two solo albums that we're listening to on these episodes. For many years, he wanted them to be completely destroyed and forgotten about. To him, they are incomplete songs that could have been perfected if he had been in a better place, as I said. Now, he does admit that on this album, the Shemp album, there were a few flashes of brilliance, one of them being the next track we're going to hear, Almost Saturday Night, my favorite song in this album and honestly i think it kind of stacks up with the best of ccr rip it this is side two track one
0: cut in my mind that's uh has that substance to it has that feeling that yeah that like legit
1: americana roots rock joyful and familiar Mm -hmm. yeah it's got that emotional resonance and then you know knowing the story and what was going on around this it adds even more emotional context to it you know it's like he's dealing with all these bullshit but he's still remaining optimistic in trying to push those clouds away and get to that Saturday night. That's almost here. Yeah. That,
0: that feeling probably before all of the, uh, fame and lawsuits and everything of just ripping a sick show on a Saturday night.
1: Yep. So the infighting between the members of credence, Clearwater revival has never been resolved to this day. Many lawsuits have been filed against each other for various reasons, but John felt that the other members had repeatedly betrayed him by taking sides with fantasy records and Saul Zance. Tom Fogarty passed away in 1990 from AIDS, contracted from a blood transfusion during back surgery in the late 80s. And as Jeremy said, John claims that on one of his last visits to see his brother in the hospital, Tom told him, Saul Zance is my best friend, which it's just like such a slap in the face when you know everything that Saul had done to him at that point. And John has said that he's obsessed over that interaction ever since and is just so deeply hurt by it and couldn't understand why his brother would say such a thing to him. Um, John John also stated in the autobiography that he has a strong suspicion that Saul is really the main reason why him and his brother were never able to come to terms again.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say that He thinks that
1: Saul is the devil. (laughs) Saul killed his brother. No, I mean, like I said, Saul was a master manipulator and he had convinced the other members that John was the bad guy. And that Saul was just this like poor victim and this nice businessman who had just wanted to make these guys a bunch of money. But John just couldn't stop being an asshole. And, you know, it's entirely likely that if Saul wasn't in the picture being this like relentlessly evil person, that John and Tom could have, you know, cleared their differences before he passed away. Who knows?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that really has to hang on him, too, on John.
1: Yeah. Or at least it did for a long time. When Credence was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1993, john snubbed the other surviving band members by refusing to let them play on stage with him instead john performed with studio musicians plus bruce springsteen and robbie robertson as mentioned supposedly doug and Stu were under the impression that they would be performing that night and instead had to awkwardly watch the set from the side of the stage doug and Stu were furious and reported to the press that john's treatment of them was unfair and completely unprovoked And most people just ran with that. I think that has a lot to do with this reputation that I'd always heard of John just being this insufferable prick, like I had mentioned earlier. However, John had two very good reasons for doing this. The first is that just a couple of years previous, during the plagiarism lawsuit and court battle... Saul had testified that it was actually Stu Cook who first pointed out the similarities in the songs and suggested that Saul sue John for plagiarism. Oh. The second reason is that John had begun to notice CCR songs showing up on really shitty comps and product commercials. When John heard the song Proud Mary in a commercial for Shell Oil, he was furious. It went against everything he stood for and the integrity that he had tried to protect with CCR's content. He was confused, though, because the contract that they had rewritten in 1969 gave the band veto power over releases like this for this exact same reason. The band would have an equal vote on things and no decision was made unless the vote was unanimous. So for a long time, Saul was pushing for CCR tracks to be on commercials and soundtracks, and generally the band would say yes and then John would say no and that was it. But then suddenly these songs are appearing everywhere, and John is digging into like how is this happening? Why like this shouldn't be legal? What is going on? At first, the other band members claimed to have no knowledge of this, but then later admitted that they had sold their band votes, voting rights to Saul Zant. And this had actually taken place in 1988, and no one had told John that it happened.
2: Yep, that explains Um, a few things. Yep.
1: Stu later offered John a half-hearted apology, which John refused to accept and basically said to to him that your apology means nothing unless you correct the damage that you have personally done to me. Which, again, he's right. You know, (laughs) he's super not wrong. You can't do that kind of bullshit and then just be like, hey, man. I did some not nice things to you and I'm sorry. It just doesn't cut it at that point.
2: No, you have to <laughs> rectify something in order to prove that you're truly
1: apologetic. <laughs> exactly. So Saul Zantz having the only say on who got to use CCR's music is why you hear songs like Fortunate Son on car commercials and at trumpet rallies nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Stu's personal reason for selling his voting rights to Saul were, quote, I don't care about the music, just give me the money. Oh. <laughs> so here we have yet another fine example of capitalism ruining the only beautiful things left in the world. Yeah. Oh,
0: poor John.
1: Yeah, for real though.
2: He has uh you know anything you've ever heard about John Fogerty being a quote unquote asshole? He has every right.
1: Exactly. Like again, those claims are probably true, but if you just look at that part of the story, it, it's, it's not fair to John in any way. Fortunately, this is finally where John's happy ending begins. John met his current wife, Julie, in the late 80s, and with her help, he was able to start working through the long process of dealing with his personal issues and addictions during the early 90s. They started a new family together, and he gradually reignited his love of music after years of not even touching a guitar. He began traveling through the American South to see firsthand the places he had spent his life singing about. During this time, John was able to reach a place of acceptance and healing for his situation with Saul Zantz. He knew he would maybe never own his own songs again, but there was no point in stressing about it anymore. No matter what, the songs would still exist and be loved by fans. In the end, a song isn't remembered for who owned it, it's remembered for the impact it has on the listener. John's songs will be remembered for many generations, and hopefully, after these episodes, more people will even look into the forgotten corners of his discography and find more new favorites of their own.
2: Yeah, d- if you don't have enough John Fogarty songs in your life already, now you got more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly in 1997 john made his second comeback into the music industry he released the album blue moon swamp which won him his first and only grammy that's best rock album from 1998. that album is considered by many to be one of his finest for the first time in decades he was making music from a place of pure joy he also began playing his old credence songs live again without any negative association He continues to release music to this day, including a sequel to the Blue Ridge Rangers in 2009 that features a duet with Bruce Springsteen and an album plus YouTube series where he covers CCR songs with his kids. He shows no signs of stopping.
2: I have to say, I don't know how I feel about another person appearing on a Blue Ridge Rangers album. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I mean, if it's, if it's the boss, it's allowed <laughs> that, in that's, my opinion. That's the exception.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Saul's aunt died in 2014, and John stated in his autobiography that there was a time when he thought he would just dance on Saul's grave the day he died. But when it actually came to pass, John felt more affected by Phil Everly, who passed on the same exact day. And as one final positive note, supposedly the publishing rights to Creedence songs will automatically revert to John after 56 years. This means that by 2026, he will finally be the rightful owner of all of his own work. He will be 81 years old.
2: Wow. It's just a few years away. Yep.
0: All right. I'm going to hold off on buying CCR Chronicle <laughs> Volume 9 or whatever until then. <laughs> So the money goes to the right place. Yeah, exactly. I wonder where the money's going now. If Saul's dead.
1: Yeah. Well, it's not going to John yet, so who knows? Well, that concludes our epic two part episode on John Fogarty. As we said at the beginning of the first episode, this was a departure from our regular format. So if you're new to the podcast, it's not always like this and feel free to drop us a line Let us know what you think. Do you want us to do some more super deep dives like this in the future? You can always find us on our social media pages and also email us at I'd Buy That Podcast at gmail.com.
2: Yep. You search I'd Buy That for a dollar on Facebook or I'd Buy That Podcast on Instagram. You will find us. And Sean, I just want to say fantastic research and delivery of this information. Thanks. Very, uh, as someone who's long loved the music of John Fogarty and CCR, I knew very little and I kind of only even knew the most basic details of all the infighting between them. It was just, it's one of those things that you just generally hear about without hearing the specifics. So this is exactly exactly very enlightening.
1: And you know, you know, I was always told that like, you can like CCR's music, but you can't like John Fogarty. And I'm, I'm happy to say that that's just not the case. He's an inspiring figure.
2: Yeah, heck, you, you can even like the center field album now.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sky's the limit. <laughs> I
0: don't even I'm not even mad about like I've I've shed the idea of him being a poser.
2: Yeah, that's really the accomplishment that we wanted out of this. Yeah. <laughs> he's not a fraud, he's not a poser. It's the real deal. He's the
0: real deal.
2: Are we about ready to wrap this up? this two-parter i yeah, think send so us
0: off to the sunset
1: with another beautiful Fogerty cut
2: yeah what what is our final Fogerty cut for the people
1: this is another of my favorites from the shop album and it just it felt like the right song to end this whole two-part epic this is a song called where the river flows looking at side two track two thanks for listening i've been your co-host sean hartman I'm Jimmy Rolls. And I am Peter Cook.